Hi, my name is Julian Champlis. I'm a professor of English and a core faculty in the Consortium for Critical Diversity and Indigenous Age Research, or CEDAR, at Michigan State University. I'm also the Val Berriman Curator of History at the MSU Museum. You are listening to Reframing History. Encyclopedia Britannica film is a great lead-in for my conversation with Dr. Mary Emma Graham. Dr. Graham is the director of the History of Black Writing Project at the University of Kansas. In 1983, she founded the project on the history of black writing with the goal of documenting the fictive literary works produced by black authors. She has been pursuing this project ever since. This is an example of a legacy black digital humanities project. And her story sheds light on the potentials and the limitations of the digital humanities and the continuing debates about the impact of race on DH. Let's give a listen to our conversation. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Graham. Thank you for the invitation. So if for those of you who are joining us, again, uh, this is the episode of Reframing History. I'm here with Dr. Mary Emma Graham, who's a distinguished professor at the University of Kansas in the Department of English. And I'm really happy to talk with her, in part because I'm really, you know, for this season of uh, Reframing History, really intrigued with the, the great variety of digital humanities projects that are happening out there in the world, and recognize that there are so many things happening that are sort of slipping through the cracks my own cracks. And in fact, I had this whole conversation with a colleague recently about the rich variety of pro, uh, projects that are happening. Dr. Graham's project is a prime example of this, a really important project. And I'm really happy that you have the time to talk to me about it today. And the project I'm talking about here is the history of Black writing, which is a digital managed project that has actually been going on for, I'm not exaggerating here, decades. Yeah, 35 <laughs> years and pushing. I'm giving my age. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you started when you were 12. Absolutely. Uh, And and you're an accomplished scholar, uh, author of several books and articles, including the Cambridge History of African American Literature, the Cambridge Companion African American Novel. Uh, You've done great work on Margaret Walker, but you've been the the founder and director of this project for the entirety of its 35 years. So how did you come about? to this project? How, how did this sort of emerge as a, a field of study for you? Because when I, I'm assuming when you started, what we call DH was not as defined as it is now. 
That is true. That is true. And our early name actually indicates the the birth of the project. It was a rather clunky name, the Computer Assisted Analysis of Black Literature or Cable. We were trying to go for an acronym. But again, in those pre-digital days, we just knew that technology is important and technology and race is even more important. So what do you do if you apply some of those new tools? Uh, and even though I didn't start at 12, the fact is I did start when I was in graduate school because I, had ra I was raising questions. And the experience I had really was doing uh, research at the Schomburg in New York when Ernest Kaiser was still alive and who was the, the living, the, the, if there is anything uh, uh, that we can see as living digitally, it was certainly Ernest Kaiser who knew everything about everything, about every book, <laughs> with his own taxonomy, uh, just fascinating. When I went in to look for some stuff, they hadn't processed what I wanted from the 1930s. So I was basically sitting on the floor going through boxes at his instruction to try to get what I needed. And I was sitting there very frustrated thinking, wouldn't it be great if this information that I want and other people might want were available and accessible in a form that you wouldn't have to go from Cornell, which is where I was at the time, to New York on weekends on the night bus to be there when the library opened in the morning and go through all this material and take it down by hand. It was a very extensive labor intensive process. And so at that point, it was just thinking, okay, I'll do this work and then somebody else will come behind me because I was looking at the 1930s, which was kind of a bleaked out period, except for Richard Wright and a few writers, we didn't talk about that period at all. And I was really interested in who was writing and I discovered a lot of writers that nobody ever talked about. And some of those have you know, come back alive in our, in our project on History of Black Writing. Um, the digital project that we of course have embraced is the Black Book Interactive Project or BPIP. Uh, and so almost everybody who's been associated with us in the last, oh, since 2010, has been associated with BPIP in one way or another. So it's our, our latest baby. So it's now, what, nine years old? That is a birthing period. <laughs> but the project itself was really about that, is that what, it was very simple. Why can't we just consolidate information and make it more available? Yes, you can go to the library if you know what you're looking for. But what if you don't know what you're looking for? You just have a question. Um, and so to answer that question, the idea of bibliographies, you know, databases, that I don't even think that term was in use at the time, the word mm -hmm. database. Right. Uh, and so we actually decided to use the term computerized database in the early days. We were just going to pull together a massive bibliography and put it on the computer and therefore make it available by circulating it to people who were teaching black literature. So if you were choosing books to teach and you were focusing on periods, let us tell you more books that were published in particular periods. So you don't just focus on the top three or four. Uh, and we actually did an early interview, um, or I should say a survey with people asking what books they taught. And we discovered that people used very, very, very small number of books over and over again. Uh, and this was, of course, 1983. So Hurston's work is just beginning to, you know, has begun to circulate, recirculate, re-enter the canon. But for the most part, lots and lots of writers were left out. 
And I was aware of a couple of things that were going on. I guess I should step back and say, I'm a child of the library. I don't know why I didn't become a librarian because I spent my childhood working in the library, living in the library, staying in the library because that was where I was supposed to be when my parents picked me up from school, after school. It was across the street from the school. So not to get in trouble, you go to the library. So I knew a lot about what was in the library. But and, and in, in, in the days of the segregated libraries, I grew up in the South, we did have more books in our libraries, for instance, than existed in, say, the main library downtown. So I would know about books written by people in my community. I'm from Augusta, Georgia, Frank Yerby's hometown, James Brown's hometown, that mm -hmm. didn't make it to those other libraries because those writers were not as significant in terms of what their work meant. Uh, Yerby, one of those writers who was, quote, a popular or historical romance writer for a long time, before he became more canonical. I think he's his work on him now, but for a long time, he was just, you know, a uh, um, pop, boiler, pop boiler writer whose work actually was adapted to film early on. So the early period was really just about collecting and recovery, collecting work, recovering work. Now I have to give credit to, to another uh, outfit because early in the 70s, and this project started 1983, but early in the 70s, at North Carolina Central University, there was a project called the African American Materials Project. It was probably before you were born. Uh, but I mean, most people I work with now, this is way before them, right? <laughs> but librarians were trying to get a handle on where black authored books were. Now they, everybody knew Fisk University. Everybody knew the Schomburg. People right. knew the Beinecke. But there were collections in institutions all over the country, particularly in the South, white and black, that nobody knew about. So this project was aimed at bringing together or trying to gain, I guess in library speak, is bibliographic control over the sources, black authored materials. So they simply named it the African American Materials Project. They, of course, started. You can imagine what happened. They had federal funding. I think it was from the Office of Education. This is before you know, some of the other um, uh, agencies became involved and they couldn't finish the project. But right. they, got very far. they got very far. And I was the fortunate beneficiary of their reports to okay. the government. Now, I don't know if I'm revealing uh, confidential information or not here, but they, they had, you know, the manuals that they compiled and the spiral bound books of all the books in various libraries, they created their own code or taxonomy of what was what. Uh, and I got that. And I saw that they had started a project that really needed to be finished in terms of African-American materials. But I also did, did more research and found that by 1970, we had about a 600 increase, percent increase in black fiction writing about a 600% increase. So is that in the sense of actual More writers being? Actual writers publishing. Now, okay. you know what happened. I can just to, to put this reference here. 1970, who publishes their first books? Tony mm -hmm. K. Bambara, the black woman. Tony Morris, oh, okay. right. Alice Walker, Meridian. I mean, the list goes on. 1970 was a banner year, particularly for black women writers. But Lots of writing occurred. And I knew at that point, I couldn't do, didn't have the power, 
capacity that the African-American Materials Project had because they really were training librarians alongside building this project. It was really a massive undertaking. But I thought I would just focus on fiction because oh. of the, the growth of fiction. So the project on the history of Black writing was kind of born because that one wasn't our original name when we had to go for funding and we needed a simpler name that would identify ourselves. And we became the African-American Novel Project. AANP. And that was where our first grant came from, NEH camp. And it was really a pre-digital grant because we were consolidating bibliographies. We were just building a database, a computerized database with NEH funding. Um, right. So this is one of the things that's really interesting. As I was doing research, I found your timeline for your projects. And of course, it covers a, a tremendous amount of funding and a tremendous amount of evolution of the project. Your project's unique, I think, and in a way, in part because it kind of comes before our contemporary definitional yes. conversations about digital humanities. So yes. it makes for a really interesting question, because I always ask people this question, how do you define digital humanities? And you're really in a unique place to, to, to answer this question, because you started before Mm -hmm. the kind of current landscape of digital humanity. So how's that sort of transformation that's happened in the last decade or so, how does that matter in, in, in part of you know, in the narrative of the life of this multi-decade project for you? So the convergence, of course, occurs uh, with several things. You know, the uh, Black periodical fiction project that Henry Louis Gates was involved in around the same time. So a lot of projects converged. But what, what was fundamentally different, I think, for us was that we wanted to put our hands on every book we had in our computerized database. We wanted to say, we need to see this book. We need to verify because part of the method that we developed was what we call a verification procedure. We discovered bibliographies were filled with errors in terms of what authors were there, what, who the authors of certain books were, white authors were included, and people, we could even find the source of errors. We could see where it was first, um, where the first error was made, and all the people subsequently published the error. So we needed to make those, we said, if we're gonna do this, it's gotta, we gotta be do it right, we gotta do it right. So we had a method. So we were thinking methodologically from the very beginning, how do we do this? So we collected books, we did interlibrary loan, we found collections. When we would hear about a house or a sale or a home, we would tell people, if you see any books, don't throw them away, call us. It was really as simple as that. And we found books in attics. We recovered books. We had people driving us books and say, I hear you all looking for black books. This is my grandfather's blah, blah, blah. So we were in the process of recovering and collecting and, and it's, it's what Kim Gallon talks about, you know, fundamentally recovery work we're doing, where we were in the very beginning, recovering a history, an unknown history, an unwritten history. Uh, so that meant that for the first three or four or five years with that NEH funding, we were just collecting all the books. But we also said, okay, this is in the library alone. We can't keep these books. We don't own them. What are we going to do? We scanned them. We photocopied them. We didn't use the word scan. We photocopied every book. We had a CEDA grant from the federal government that gave us high school students for the summer. And they were the best staff people we really ever had because they were at college. It's 15 and 16, they were on a college campus. This is University of Mississippi. Mm, and their okay. parents were proud to have them associated with this summer program. And they helped us 
what we would say today, digitize, except they weren't made, they didn't make them OCR, you know, machine readable. Right. Photocopied 1,200 or more books. And we still have those physical hand photocopies of those books. And so when the transition came to, okay, let's digitize these books, which means let's make them machine readable right. so we can do the text mining and the research on the text in this database. The problem is that we were ahead at one point and then we fell behind because the technology moved ahead so rapidly. So you're right. DH entered in and here we are still with this collection of texts, mostly unknown, mostly unknown. You know, these are not the famous writers. These are the right. most known texts that we have sitting in our offices that moved from Mississippi to Boston and ultimately to Kansas 20 years ago. So we came to Kansas with these boxes and they were in file cabinets. So we literally had the allied band line across the country. <laughs> of books. Now, clearly that was a very manual labor intensive process couldn't go on like that because the more books we got, we started getting, of course, physical copies because people knew who we were and they would send us novels, first published novels, first editions, because they'd know we would need to have it and we would talk about their work. Nobody else would talk about it. We would do reviews of the book. We would do collections. So we served a purpose for about 10 years that really was collecting and recovering at that level. The second stage for us was, okay, we know about these books, but nobody else does. We just have the photocopies. So we started developing our professional development programs. That's where a lot of the funding came in. NEH has funded about 14 of our teaching summer institutes. And we use these books. We introduce books to teachers and young, younger scholars. And we want people to know that they exist or to be curious enough to ask more questions when they are developing their curriculum. Yeah, so, this, is, this is really one of the things that uh, really impressive about the program um, and I think about some of the programs that have emerged in total popular consciousness in the last few years like the color conventions projects for instance mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you've done a lot of the same stuff you just did it like in a less digital way uh, I, mean, I don't mean that in a bad way I just in the sense that like when I look at well you've had a number of of students uh, uh, a number of like professionalization programs, you have these summer seminars, you've had publications that have spun out of this, these works. Uh, I noted that you have this uh, relationship with the uh, Cambridge University Press where you, you put out collections, a lot of work sort of like in some way creating a, a, a canon of these unknown black writers, making them known. Yeah, well, that was the purpose of the project. Like I said, we, we knew, but we had to share this information. Now, before social media, you had to do this at conferences. You had to do it in teaching contexts. And we would try to get as broad as possible. So the summer institutes meant that we were sharing with people around the country. And because I'm a product of an HBCU, um, I, you know, graduated from Chapel Hill, but I did my early career. My family is centered in those institutions. I felt that whenever we did those institutes, we made sure they were inclusive from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. So we would include people from, from community colleges, HBCUs, PWIs. We made sure that there were a large number of people who were going to go out 
and take this information. And I think that that's probably what people most know about our work. That is, they're in these institutes, they conceive of projects on their own, and they go out and publish, and they attribute the kind of questions they began to ask to the work they were doing in one of our 12 or 14 summer institutes. And people would come as graduate students. We argued for any, with NEH years ago that you got to bring graduate students into these summer institutes. Back in those days, it was only for faculty. Right, right, right. And so I can say now publicly, I broke the law sometimes, and I brought in graduate students, even though they were not supposed to technically be funded participants. But that was the best, best law that I broke, because had it not been for those graduate students who were already advanced and also much more, who were born digital, right. they brought to the project the, 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 the missing component. So you probably know more of our sort of products, I should say. Kenton Ramsey is one of them who's right. doing all kinds of works. These are people who came to KU in this particular period, the 20-year period, took the, the nail by the head and said, okay, we really want to do this kind of work. What can we do? And they brought a lot to the process. So our digital component started uh, around 2010 or so. And then we, we, called, we called it our digital project initiative, the DPI, and later on that evolved into the Black Book Interactive Project, which is really our digital component today. Right, and one of the things that I think will be really interesting for people who know DH is that your, your database, it's, it's, it's basically something that a scholar can come to and yep. pursue uh, any number of different kinds of, of research questions, right? Like if they have a question, that's right. That's yeah, right. you 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 have a data you have a data set basically. Right. Well, so and, and and the basis is they to really make this very simple because it can be very complicated, and I think there's an intention to make something so complicated, like you know, like uh, a poetry, make it so complicated nobody can understand it. So and make the criticism of it something that has to has to be trained or taught, but we wanted to be able to say, you can come to our database. We have a database. If you know novels out there that we don't have, and that is exactly what is happening right now as I speak, mm -hmm. we have our latest, most recently funded program for BPIP is a scholars program. The Black Book Interactive Project is an, in a database. The interface is done by our partners with partnership with the University of Chicago. So it's a philologic, interface it, it has our hbw corpus in it all of our novels so we send the novels to them they do the digitizing and therefore that the interface is what people can access people come up with different projects we've got people who are interested in looking at how afrofuturism predates the term itself right so how do we then do the kind of text mining whether it's through word searches or phrase searches or looking at settings or looking at the use of the word history, we can pull text and point us in the direction of questions that we can ask of those texts. So it's simple in a sense of doing the kind of searching through our database. You're right. Once you get the text that you need, then it leads you to other stuff. Right. So you don't start with a pre determined set of books. We're saying we've got the whole database you can search. Right. But let's call, let's find a shared language or a common vocabulary that we're looking for that might in fact 
appear in some of these books. So we look for all the terms and we generate lists. And you can then take that list and develop a research schema to work with that. And that's what the, beast, the scholars right now are doing. They are looking at the database. They are helping us expand the database, first of all, because we, we start with the, we, we have the same numbers of books we started with. We've digitized all of them. We have created a metadata schema, which is one of our grant projects, is that we argue that the current schema that people are using did not pay attention to factors of race and racialization. So we came up with a schema that did that. And so we created our own. Um, and so every book that enters into our database will be described in a particular way that pays particular attention to race uh, over time. So people develop projects once they see how many books were concerned with X, Y, or Z, mostly books we don't even know and talk about. So you're right. right. So that's, that's kind of the, 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 the way it works. People come to the database right now the BPIP scholars are funded to do that. They are part of a nine-month, 10-month program through webinars and on-site meetings. They come to do the work. We learn how to do it together, and they practice. We supply support staff for them, and they do their research. And there are various stages of research and doing various kinds of projects. So how does a, a scholar get on that track is there like an open call we have a website we people communicate with us directly okay bpip bpip has its own website uh and people can you know uh communicate reach out that way uh, we have our offices at the university of kansas we thought that the bpip scholars program would be the best way to do it because then we have 14 15 people around the country right. who are doing things with the the database and they can therefore invite other people. So they would spread the word. Basically, they're the, we're sort of using the each one teach one model. You've right. got 15 people, different institutions. We encourage people to do work together. So there are teams in many of the projects. That is people, two people from an institution or someone working with a similar institution nearby and they're working on projects together. And the projects vary. Some people want to know how the, how the idea of a diaspora operates in black fiction. Right. So you ask questions that relate to that. Some people want to know what is the specificity of certain themes? How do, how do we look at the thematic ideas? Because that is one way of looking at literature thematically. So you can use uh, one real project right now is Dr. Trudy Harris is doing a, a new book on the theme of home in black literature. So she wanted us to see how home figures in our database. So we were pulling all the text and we looked at Way home is used, but all those words that stand for home. We always do that. So we generate it. Now, of course, you can't, she'd be writing 20 volumes if she would have do, do st a study on every book that we had. <laughs> right. know how many books we had, but we do have a lot of books. So she can at least set up something. And in our view, she can set up something for other students to come behind her and do the additional work because they see the beginning of something very new. So I think the strength that we feel we have is that we, we put something out there, we get you started, and we let you see what you can create and generate on your, on your own, and then you start your own pod. And right. that's so this, this seems like it's a, a really powerful model, like the, you know, the, the teaching model to, to get the information out there. And you've been, I think, extremely successful in maintaining uh, sort of uh, integrity of the project 
what is what do you see as your biggest challenge very good question because as dh becomes its own i hate to use the word animal or monster um because (laughs) you know it is now such a big thing in the field the interesting thing about it is the very notion of the digital humanities seems to have taken off without giving serious thought to the term humanities or the human being human so what we're saying is that we put the humanities back into the work that's being done. We're saying here are all these human beings whose work exists that has been excluded from the vast majority of the work that we've done. Right. So when people, like I said, Kim Gallon argue that recovery is the central element, that is true. We still are recovering work. We're naming the unnamed. We're bringing things to the surface. And we are trying to understand what do those traditions tell us that we don't know? And how can we say we know what the history of the human experience is without that? So this is a powerful tool and process, but also a questioning of whether a field like the digital humanities can really exist without the kind of work that we're doing that's Black studies related. Yeah, and I, I think that's really interesting. Uh, I I don't know that a lot of people understand some of the complexities around DH that's sort of inflected by uh, Black studies. Like you mentioned, Kim Gowan, who's a professor who wrote a wrote a really seminal essay mm-hmm. about Black DH. Right. Um, and and I think for some people who are doing DH, there is a, a great great emphasis is sort of spinning out of the post-colonial DH conversations mm-hmm. from a few years ago that, you know, these spaces, the digital humanity spaces are basically replicating the same kind of omissions yes. that are hap- that happened in the original space, right? The physical, the physical spaces. And so a lot of Black DH work, I, I count myself among this, is about recovery. It's about recovery, it's about discovery, right? You, you're trying to bring these things that are hidden to public light and you're using the digital humanity to do it. But one of the things that's interesting about your project is that it sort of straddles this 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 divide between what is at base is basic level recovery work, but also really strong interpretive work, right? Like you have a data set, yep. And the maintenance of that, da- the creation of that data set in itself is its own sort of interpretive project. Like you have to create the taxonomy, you have to create the metadata, you know, you create the ways of knowing basically, right? Right. Uh, and and the tools, right? Like you 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 know, you once you have a data set, there are a number of tools that you can bring to it, and depending on your training and your background, and and, and you know, are you doing co locations? Are you doing are you using right. Boolean? Are you you know? Well, the the text mining part of it, you know, if, as I said, if you go the reverse engineering route, you got to think about okay, what do I want to know at the end of the process? And so, I think that the difficulty, and you talk about what are the problems right now, the difficulty is that there is a deep learning curve in the people. And so I would argue that if you don't, if you think about it as something foreign to you and not something that might in fact be more central to Black culture generally, that is the use of technology is something that is not at all foreign too. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. We can create out of any anything. Right. Yeah. 
if you look at, at MCs, you're looking at any of the work that we do that comes through hip hop, that there are ways in which technology uh, or uh, Adam Banks' book, Digital, Dr Digital Griots, right. those kinds of ideas of technology are not foreign to us. So we kind of demystify, I think, what DH is, the you know, race and technology coming together, race and technology. Now, that's a big sweep here. So you get a corner of that. Which piece are you doing? I would say what we're trying to do is create a model. I'm doing fiction. Who's doing poetry? Right. Who's doing theater and drama? Who's doing um, any, kind of, any kind of work that has some kind of generic base to it? Who's doing the work? So you can create a data set or even or, or art, visual stuff. You can do create a data set with all of it because the technology does exist. And the data set simply allows you to study, to mine it. And that's not complicated. Right. So is that at some level the next the next stage for you? Like is it is it a question of like, okay, we we at some level have um this sort of history of black writing. Yep. Now we need to like start thinking about nonfiction or like poetry or exactly is, is that your next developmental yeah. stage yeah and I, and I think because we always felt like we need to train as we go that is as we move to these different stages we want everybody to be on the same page too right as many people as possible and it's intergenerational so I would be the first to admit that my level of skill with our project is far inferior to those of my students. Sure. Because they are born digital. They have an immediate kind of response and an intuitiveness about it that I struggle to achieve. But we're working together. So this is always collaborative work. It takes teams of people. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, we just, we've got teams of people. So, and that's something people have to get over too. The lone scholar doing work all of us get credit. All of us are doing this work together. We're doing right. different pieces of it. We have specializations that we bring together. And we're also crossing the disciplinary boundaries. We're working with librarians. We're working with, with staff people. You know, at the very beginning, as I said, we weren't doing, doing computers, but I did my work primarily with the uh, computing, computer engineering staff at the University of Mississippi because nobody knew what I was doing. I'm not sure I knew what I was doing. Right. But I yeah. knew there was a better way to bring information together and to organize it and make it accessible. That was just the principle I was on. But right now it is training people who can take this project and run with it and adopt the model to whatever they're interested in. But you're right, it starts with a data set. You've got to build the data set. <laughs> yeah. And it can be small, it can be large. We felt like we could be the master beta data set for African-American fiction, the novel in particular. That's what we started with, we're still with. Anybody wants to know what has been published, we should, at some, it'll never be complete. It will live long past me. I know this, or <laughs> you for that matter. Right, yeah, yeah. You know, because, but we are talking about succession. We have right. to talk about that. Right. Who will keep adding to this database? Right now, it's the only one out there like this. It's the only one. Right. Yeah, I, I'm just struck by that. <laughs> like, oh, if you think about it, where would you find 
Yeah. You can't so, you can't find it anywhere so, else. So people I mean, not even the library of Congress. Well, no, you can't. No, yeah, I don't think yeah. we we know where stuff is, you know, which is one of the first things we did, you know, composite there's a consolidation of where stuff exists, but we thought it needed to also exist be available to people. So people bringing us and that's what I'm saying, when you come to this project, my view is that you also become part of it and you own it. So I may have founded it in 1983, but the people who work with us also own this project. Many of them bring titles that are added to the database. So you people have work invested in here and they and it belongs to them as much as it belongs to me. So it is in that sense it's a, it's a public space. You could look at this idea of DH is being a public space where people can enter and have certain kinds of conversations that are not being held anywhere else. So I think that our ownership over this, in a sense, is probably much more powerful than we realize. Way beyond the debates that other people are having. You know, my I was asked for a quote for a newspaper article recently, um, and they was they were saying, well, you know there's a lot of controversy over DH about what it what it doesn't do blah 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 blah. I said my question is what has it not done right <laughs> what has and we know what it has not done because the exclusionary practices as you say have continued and there is a hierarchy right. in the digital humanities arena and the work that we do is if you just use you know, Amy Earhart's term, the DIY, the do-it-yourself project. Mm -hmm. We are an original do-it-yourself project. Right, right. right. Do-it-yourselfers don't get very far. Right. You know, they drop off the radar, the web, the URL disappears. Right, yeah. There's no infrastructure. Right, so what do you do? And so, and then if you talk about black collections at HBCUs, under-resourced, underfunded, closing by the day, then what's going on? So we have a lot of work to do in terms of making sure things come into the digital domain so that they can be preserved. So it's also cultural preservation. Right. It's that as well. So the recovery is one thing, the discovery is one thing, but the preservation is another. So there are technical questions we have to ask, which is why we need the people who talk about what technologies are gonna remain, which is gonna be fleeting, what are we doing, is it going to be available in the next 10 years? We have those kinds of critical questions. But the bigger questions are really the exclusionary practices that continue and the hierarchy. And hierarchies drive funding. Right. I know I'm fairly lucky because I've been, you know, pushing that door as much as I could. But I don't get nowhere near the kind of funding that's available for DH. I mean, a lot of money has been going into this arena. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, and I'm saying we are doing some of the, I think we're doing the groundwork. We're doing the groundwork that's pushing the field itself to, to, to be more humane and human, to, to live up to your reputation. It's not just quantify. Now, I can also say that there is a question of how technology has disadvantaged Black people. We know this is also the case. So I don't know, you may not remember the Cleometrics. Do you remember that era? era? I, do, I do remember that, yeah. No, yeah. That did not serve to our advantage. That Ooh. was not helpful, yeah. That's right. Cleometricians were arguing, well, actually, the number's not as big as we thought. Whatever, right. whatever, yeah. whatever. Yeah. The numbers say the calories for a slave were... <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So you do have times when you have to question 
you know, what that was about. And part of that is who's at the table when these decisions are being made. And I think that's the argument for a lot of people in DH now. When you're talking about these projects and shaping and defining, and as they say, cre the knowledge production and creation that you're doing, who's at the table? Right, yeah. Who's, yeah. Who, who's part of the conversation? If you're not part of the conversation, you very likely will be left out. Yeah, one well, of the questions that are being you know, formulated at that table also are really important. Right, and so you change the nature of the questions. You change the spaces in which the questions are being had or asked, and you force to the table questions that people would prefer to keep hidden. Right, and answers become different too, right? Like, the, like answers are not the same. It, it, yeah, alternative it, notions of the human. Right. Yeah. All of this comes to the table when we sit there and battle out hard questions that have always been central to the humanities, in my view. So I think it's correctly named, that is digital humanities, but it hasn't lived up to the human part. Right. It's lived up to the digital part but the human part is a little lacking. So that's a good place to to come to an end because like that's the, the classic question of DH. Um, I know that uh, you guys have a great website. Uh, so if you want to find you online, it's hbw.ku.edu. That's right. If, if people want to reach out to you, can they reach you through your website? Yes, you can. And you can reach, reach us through that website or, you know, mgram at ku.edu, and I can redirect you. Uh, because one of the advantages of the BPIP team that's working on this, that is the staff right now, uh, is that we have, a, we have a team of advisors who right. can literally help people do the work they wanted to do. And okay. we, we're right now with our BPIP scholars, first, our first class of scholars, but our hope is that we will secure additional funding to have ongoing classes of BPIP scholars. So more scholars coming in to do more work and to be able to bring, expand the database, but also to develop their own models across the board. So yes, and, those are the ways. For the, the project on the history of black writing, are you guys gonna be at any conferences coming up? Or, uh, yep, yep. We've, we've, been, we've been conference hiding, hopping most of the spring. Uh, because uh, the work is, you know, moving ra rapidly once we got the second round of funding. Uh, we are going to probably be at the African American Museums Conference in August. Um, we, the grant that, I don't want to jinx this, but the grant that we are, we wrote for our summer institute will have a presence at the Zora Festival 2021 because the people who are coming to that will have developed some projects that we want to share. And we're doing a big conference and we, and we have been, we've chosen to have our work session, on-site sessions mm -hmm. at the College Language Association. College Language Association, so right, yeah, yeah. This past April, our BPIP scholars met on a Saturday. They had a full day meeting and we're gonna do that again next April in Memphis, Tennessee. And, and that's so Memphis, Tennessee. April 1st, okay. 1st or 4th, April, Memphis, Tennessee, which is CLA's meeting, and we will be meeting in conjunction with them and have sessions. People can come in and just out of curiosity, they'll see some of the work being presented because the scholars that are with us now will be making their presentations at that time. And the CLA Journal is also where some of the, the publications for some of the scholars are here, right? 
actually the only, I know, dedicated journal or special issue to Black DH was done by CLA. And the editor was Howard Ramsey. Right. The only yeah. one that I've seen that's been focused on what we would call Black DH. And so we might be running behind, but I think we have the structure to really build and make a major contribution. And so I hope that people see this as not something that is too foreign, too strange, too unusual, but something that they probably are already ready to do without realizing it. Well, you know, I think one of the things about this project is that now as people learn more about it, that the opportunity to come work with your data set, yep. um, it, it's a tremendous opportunity because you have the questions, mm -hmm. having the data set, making the data set is often like one of the hardest things about DH work. Yeah. Right? Yep. Make a data yeah. <laughs> so. Labor intensive, but I think we can also help people formulate questions. If you just sort of say, I'm curious about blah, 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 we can help you refine those questions that would allow you to get what you need from the corpus when you when you when you you know go and insert some words and phrases into the the the, the uh, corpus the interface the, the philologic interface it's called then you will generate text that will help you now you gotta you can't it's not an excuse for having to do hard work now let me make sure that's clear to no no but you know i think you know for people who are interested in dh the, the, that understanding of of you know you have a ready-made corpus here with a taxonomy and that there's a way you can shape some research questions and start pulling out some results and yeah. that really opens the door to a lot of different things i mean there's a couple of ideas i'll probably want to contact you about myself okay. well, um, we're here, we're here. <laughs> but i want to um like i say i always try to keep these things uh under an hour so i i really appreciate you taking the time to tell us about this great project I really do appreciate that. Uh, you've done Thank a you. lot. Thank you for the invitation, as I said, and I'm looking forward to to meeting more people and hopefully uh, asking more questions collectively that can push this field forward to our advantage. Yeah, um, I think that there's there's going to be a lot more attention given to the kind of questions that you're talking about. I, I do not think you're alone in in these these questions. Uh, but you're at a very particular place because of your data set allows you to really facilitate a set of conversations. So hopefully people will follow up and, and learn more about um, your project. Of course, we'll put links in the show notes and uh, let people know. Uh, but again, thanks for taking the time, Dr. Graham, and thank all of you for listening to Reframe History. Always, you can follow us on Apple and subscribe to the podcast and like us and stay tuned for the next episode. So thanks well, a lot. Thank you. We will also link uh, to our website as well. Thank you for listening to Reframing History. This is an anchor podcast that you can subscribe to on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcast. Please join us again for our next episode.